Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. It is that time again. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Guy Marzarati. In this week for Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, one of 21 candidates running for the Democratic nomination for president, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. And he's making climate change the cornerstone of his campaign. He definitely is. And he'll be joining us in just a few minutes. But first, Guy, uh, well, some fireworks in Washington this week. U.S. Attorney General William Barr testified, of course, uh, before the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. Senate, which happens to include both California Senators, Diane Feinstein, the senior member, and Kamala Harris, actually the junior member, the first and last of the Democrats uh, to talk. That's right. She hits 10th, uh, but we'll be talking about her first today. Uh, as we often have on the show, look, these uh, moments of questioning when Kamala Harris gets to take on Trump uh, officials or different people testifying in both the Senate Intelligence and Senate Judiciary Committee, this is when she is in her proverbial bag, her zone, her element. This is when she gets to show off the kind of prosecutorial skills that I think she's largely basing her presidential campaign on. She is. And of course, she got a lot of headlines uh, for her uh, sharp questioning. I think you could say very methodical ABCD. Uh, one thing leads to the next. Uh, and as you said, it's uh, her experience as a prosecutor, which she is quick to point out. I want to play a, a little clip from uh, one a portion of that questioning where she is asking William Barr, the attorney general, about uh, whether or not President Trump's been involved in the Department of Justice. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Attorney General Barr, has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. uh... Yes or no? Could you you repeat that question? I will repeat it. Has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Yes or no, please, sir. Um, The president or anybody else. Seems you'd remember something like that and be able to tell us. Yeah, you can just kind of hear him burning up the clock there, uh, trying to run down the clock. Uh, Of course, he was under oath, uh, so he was being careful not to... uh, lie, I guess you'd say. But there's been a lot of talk that the president has, in fact, been encouraging the Department of Justice to look into, for for example, Hillary Clinton. But I think it was notable that running out the clock was not what Harris was trying to do. And that's kind of stands in contrast. There's two other senators on that panel, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, also running for president, who started out, you only get seven or so minutes, and they both started out their time really with these stem whining uh, summaries of how they thought Barr has handled Mueller's report. Harris, the clip that we played, that was how she started. She went right into the questioning. And I think, you know, it's a lot of talk about seven minutes of time. I think we have to take a step back. Why does this matter? 
I think in a field where you're in a field of 20 or 21 candidates, there's only so many singular moments that you get. This is a solo, basically. The you got to make the most of it. The entire political world is watching this. This is your chance to kind of make a viral moment. And I think it is kind of a good precursor, as we're now less than two months away, from debates. You're, you're going to be on stage with 10 other candidates. I would push back, though, because I know there's a lot of the talk is, oh, this really shows she could go toe-to-toe with President Trump on the debate stage. And we will see. Perhaps it does. But first, she's got to get through 20 or so Democrats. And I'm not sure that it is the same skill, that it does translate. But, uh, you know, maybe Right. I would say, you know, I don't I don't think the general election debates. And honestly, I think in a general election, by the time the debates come around in September, people have made up their mind. I'm thinking more in a primary stage. You're there with 10 other candidates. And you really are looking to create a viral moment, a moment where even people who are not watching live will be re-watching on their Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds, uh, you know, for days to come. I think she's she's honed in on that and an ability to kind of a quick strike moment, um, which could come in handy if she's going against 20 other people over the course of two well, nights. Well, especially Joe Biden, I think, because Biden, although he's had a really good week, a uh, big bounce in the polls from his announcement that he's running. Uh, you know, I don't know that his strength is going to be quick pivoting and parrying of uh, topics on a debate stage. I mean, uh, he has a lot of other strengths, but I'm not sure that is going to be one of them. And I think you have to give Kamala Harris particular credit because she is the junior senator on that committee. And she went last. Uh, Some of these other folks, Klobuchar, Cory Booker, they had a little more time to think about how they were going to make their mark, how they were going to, you know, make some news perhaps. And the fact that she did go last and made the most of it, uh, you know, I think that says a lot for her. And she's tried to capitalize it, as they all have, with uh, fundraising pitch is right after pre-written email yeah yeah all right we're gonna take a short break and when we come back our conversation with washington state governor and presidential candidate jay inslee you're listening to political breakdown from kqed public radio Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, and we're here with Guy Marzarati and our guest, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. Governor Inslee, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you. for This is the center of Western civilization, so thanks for having me. <laughs> well, as long as you're here, it is. We'll say that. So listen, let's talk about your early years. You uh, grew up in Washington State. Uh, your dad, I think, was a biology teacher. Uh, talk about uh, you know the impact of growing up in a place like that and how it affects the way you think today about the outdoors and obviously the environment. Well, I was really fortunate. My dad was a coach, biology teacher. My mom and dad worked on the slopes of Mount Rainier in the summers, helping fix the alpine meadows and helping people in a group called the Student Conservation Association. So I grew up uh, surrounded by, you know, ideas about biology and and, and forest meadows to to uh, revegetate and, and forests to hike in and, you know, and places to kayak and clam and crab. And it was, a, you know, a great place to grow up and I carry those memories now as governor because I'm very engaged in trying to make sure that my grandchildren have the same opportunities that I do. And, and the, the reality is, is that they will not. They will not have 
forest to hiking because they're burning down. They will not have snow to ski on because the snow level's going up. They're not having shellfish to catch because we can't grow baby oysters right now because of the ocean acidification. So this is a heritage that I enjoyed, and I'm committed to fight for my grandchildren. It's one of the reasons I'm running for president. Now, did I read that your dad taught Jimi Hendrix? Is that a true story? We don't know for sure. He taught at Garfield High School. We're not positive yet. We've never done the records research. But I know he did not teach him uh, chemistry. I'll, I think, I'll yeah, I think he would have been more he, of a chemistry guy than no, biology. He, my, my dad was a biology teacher. He didn't teach him guitar, I don't think. <laughs> no, he did not teach him left-handed guitar. <laughs> but my dad was a, a very well-loved teacher and coach. And I'll tell you, one of the joys of governor is I get to meet his former students and come up and tell me what a difference he made in their lives. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, look, your dad really turned me around. And that's one of the reasons I'm so committed to educators right now. That's one of the reasons I fought and get a, the biggest pay increase I've had for a long time. So his memory is important in my life. You uh, were quite an athlete when you were young. I think you were the starting quarterback, uh, state champion in basketball. Um, did you have any interest in politics at that time? Or is it all kind of focused more on sports? No, I don't remember. I was focusing on basketball and, and then Trudy Tyndall, now my wife of 46 years at the time. So those were my two f- things I focused on. I will have to argue with you about being a star, though. I was hardly a star. I was, in fact, I'm the only person in American history uh, to have uh, a seven-point scoring average and have my, my jersey retired at my high school. <laughs> so I had to be elected governor to get that happen. So between football and basketball, did you have, like, which was your real passion? Basketball has been my passion in older times where I've, you know, played till I was in my early 60s and got to play a vigorous game against Barack Obama at the White House. And he still complains about me, accusing me of fouling him once. But, you know, I just once just called you a hack. He called me a hack and he did so uh, at an event in front of about 2000 people. (laughs) <laughs> and I had to tell him afterwards, I said, you know, that was pretty pretty rough on there, on me, Mr. President. And let me just tell you that uh, you can go ahead and trash talk me all you want anytime you raise me a million dollars for my campaign. <laughs> so I, it was acceptable. He's a, good, he's a good baller. I respect his game. So after high school, you actually came down here just a few miles from <clears> where <throat> we are today, went to Stanford for a year. You know, what happened there? Why, why did you leave after a year? Well, I love Stanford. It was a great year. It was a very tumultuous year. It was it was Cambodia spring and there was a lot of unrest and the Vietnam War was certainly a powerful issue. Um, so it was quite a year, but uh, I did not win the scholarship that I hoped to have won. I played freshman basketball and the coach correctly assessed my talents and uh, freed me not to be in the varsity. So I went back up to the University of Washington. I essentially could not afford a Stanford education, but I did love it. it had a wonderful and I still have a lot of friends from that time. Uh, but I went up to the University of Washington, majored in economics, uh, uh, studied energy uh, usage, went to Stockholm, Sweden, to the first international conference on the environment. And that sort of began my effort and interest in clean energy. And I've followed up now as being the candidate for president to help uh, tame climate change. And that started my interest in that was in that research project we did back in 1972. So uh, all is well. I'm fully employed and back at uh, the Stanford community. So then from uh, college, you went to law school, eventually moved to central Washington. So you were from the Seattle area, the west side of the state. What was life like moving, you know, living in central Washington? Um, I loved uh, living in the Yakima Valley. It's an area where the some of the best apples in the world comes from. Trudy and I raised our three boys there. 
We lived in an old farmhouse. I grew alfalfa on the side. And it was an idyllic experience. I, uh, we got involved in public life uh, trying to pass a school bond, and we passed it after six failures. We passed it on the seventh try. And shortly thereafter, the legislature changed the funding formula and cut our money about in half. And I got angry about this whole thing, and so I ran for the legislature and went to the legislature and ever since have been working on educational issues and early childhood educations and education issues. Some of the things I started then, we now are advancing as governor with huge increases in early child education, huge increases in school funding. So what I started in the Yakima Valley, of, I'm now finishing as governor. So you uh, were living and got elected, I think, to the state legislature from a more conservative area? Yeah, I was in a, a very conservative area, about a 63% Republican district, and I got elected because I was focused on, on uh, education. And uh, then I went to Congress in 1992, and then in 1994, um, we had a vote where we needed just a couple votes to pass the assault weapon bill. And I believe that was the right thing for the country. And I also knew if I voted for it, there was a probability that I would not retain my seat. But I felt then and I felt now that it was an obligation to follow my convictions. And I felt that no child's life was you know, less important than any congressman's seat. So I voted for the assault weapon bill. It was one of the pivotal votes. It passed. And I was not reelected, but I have never for one second I regretted that vote. It was the right vote then. It is now. And I'm pleased now as governor, I've led uh, and, and we've had three major advances in common sense gun legislation. What, what was that process like getting to a yes vote? Because uh, there were some reports that you were undecided uh, is, you know, just on the day, I think, of the vote. Was it was it that fear, the political fear? Or did you have any questions about the bill itself? Well, um, look, when you pick up your family and you move 2,500 miles and you change your kids from the school they're in and and you have such disruption in your life and you're doing something you really believe in, which was serving the United States in Congress. And I was doing a really good job because we made some real progress on water issues for my community, passed the Yakima River Bill. It was really important. Worked on some issues to get our apples into Japan very successfully. But when you have a realization that one vote may end your political career, you, you do give thought to that, and I did. But um, I realized that on something that is of a life and death issue, which we now experience continually, and including in our mosques and our temples, as we have so recently in our country, that this was clearly the right vote. It was a vote of deep conviction. You know, in those days representing a conservative district, I'm wondering were there positions you took or, you know, votes that you took where looking back you felt like, you know, I may I may regret that. I may have done it representing this specific area, but now holding an office representing an entire state, maybe now running in a Democratic primary, I regret that vote. Well, uh, look, I don't work. I don't run my life looking backwards first. I don't look in the rearview mirror, so I don't spend a lot of time doing that. But I do believe I, I, I felt I followed my convictions. There are votes that I would have cast differently today. One was for the crime bill, for instance, that if I'd known then what I know now about how it would affect particularly minority communities, I would have not I would not have cast that vote had I known that. 
But that's the lessons of history that we all should learn. And if you don't learn from history, you're not paying attention. When you got uh, reelected to Congress, it was a different district. You moved more to the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. Yep. Was, was that, uh, you know, what? why did you decide to move? Was that sort of thinking, well, if I, did you want to get back to Congress and thought maybe that was more friendly territory or was it more complicated than that? We decided to go back to the west side um, of the state. Um, you know, our families were getting a little older and being closer to our parents was kind of handy. And our kids had already sort of moved, so they were ready for the next adventure felt right. So we went back to Bainbridge Island, a beautiful little island, and and it's just a gorgeous place to live. And so I've, I've been happy and we've been there ever since. And you resigned that seat to run for governor in 2012. Yeah, I got elected in 1998, um, uh, again, running on environmental issues and running on gun safety issues. And and I was one of only two members of Congress that defeated incumbents, Republican incumbents. I ran as an underdog. There's been a theme throughout my career that I've started almost always as an underdog. And then in 2012, started 16 points behind, but beat a sitting attorney general and and have and ran on climate change at that time. I was maybe the first person to win a governor's race running on an issue that we needed uh, to build a clean energy economy. So that strategy of I'm giving up the seat that I have, I'm going all in for the race that I want. In that case, it was the governor's race. What's kind of the strategy, the thinking behind mm-hmm. that? I mean, it's, it's not a step you're taking in this race. Um, you know, what kind of went through your decision-making not having that safety valve? Well, I thought it was achievable that, uh, you know, you're one of 435 when you're in the House. You're one of one when you're governor. So I'm maintaining uh, my responsibilities and very effectively, I believe. We just finished what I think was, in my view, one of, if not the most effective legislative session in state history where we've passed a 100% clean electricity bill. We've passed the best uh, energy efficiency bill in, in America's history with the first requirement for retrofitting commercial buildings. We passed the first long-term care bill. We've passed the first public option. We've done a lot of really good things in the last couple of months. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Guy Marzarati, and our guest this week is Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. He's running for president in the Democratic <clears throat> primary. Uh, climate change is really the raison d'etre of your campaign. That is what you're focusing on. I don't speak French, but I don't either. And I'm sure I mispronounced that. It sounds very classical to me. (laughs) (laughs) I speak Spanish, not French so much. But anyway, uh, why, why do you risk being sort of a one note candidate or on the other side, do you feel you need to do something more quote unquote out there to distinguish yourself? Because, you know, all the Democrats running for president are talking about climate change. Uh, three answers to that. Number one, look, climate change is not one issue. It's all the issues. It's all the issues wrapped into one package. Because no matter what you care about in America, we can't solve your problem or advance your your aspirations unless we uh, uh, solve climate change. Look, if the economy is your number one, we're having massive economic damages to our communities right now. You know, you've had a bankruptcy of your utility. You had 25,000 people have their homes burned down. You have $1.5 billion of damage in the Midwest from the floods, enormous infrastructure damage in Miami, all across America. This is an economic issue. Look, the course of inaction, people say, does it cost too much to fight climate change? No, it costs way too much not to fight fight climate change and, and beat it, number one. It's, it's a job creation opportunity on the positive side like crazy. It's a health care issue uh, all across America. Look, I remember 
talking to a couple in New Hampshire uh, a couple weeks ago. Their daughter lost two years in college because of Lyme disease, right? Lyme disease is a tough disease, and it's moving north because ticks are moving north. If you care about national security, this is a national security issue that might be one of the top national uh, security threats of the United States. The Pentagon has issued repeated warnings to the president that that this is going to cause more droughts, it's going to cause more mass migrations, it's going to cause more political instability. We have climate change refugees today on our border from Guatemala right today. So this is all of the issues wrapped up in one, and we have to solve it to solve the other issues. You, uh, one of your uh, other uh, opponents in this race, if, if that's what you want to call him, is Pedro, Pedro O'Rourke, a former El Paso congressman. He put out an environmental uh, policy platform this week, and you were pretty quick to slap them down and say, why did you cast these sort of pro-oil industry votes when you were in the, in the House of Representatives? I mean, do you feel like part of being the climate change candidate is part of that to call out others? The regulator. The regulator. <laughs> to, you know, to call people out when they're inconsistent, shall we say, or, you know, have, are hypocritical. Well, I would think, uh, no, I would think a better uh, ambition is to, to inspire people to raise their game. And I hope that my candidacy is having that impact. I welcome anybody to come up with ideas, but I do believe that the the urgency of this, together with the massive undertaking it is to develop a real mobilization of the American economy, demands someone with, uh, with my experience and my passion, not somebody who might have thought of this recently because it has some nice political overtones now, but this is a massive undertaking that requires enormous political capital an enormous commitment. And I have that. Uh, look, I, I, there's no question about this for people who know me. I helped uh, establish the U.S. Climate Alliance with Jerry Brown and, and Andrew Cuomo in 2016. I've introduced some of the first legislation in 2003. I now have advanced some of the most leading aggressive climate change legislation in America. I'm moving the needle not as a bumper sticker, but as actual reality. So uh, I'm happy to inspire others to join me in this regard, and, I, and I'll be happy to have that discussion. Well, I was going to say, you know, you wrote a book more than 10 years ago, I think, talking about yep. economic mobilization in mm -hmm. the face of climate change. The Green New Deal comes along. I don't know if you've reached out to AOC for royalties or, or anything <laughs> like that. But, you know, how can you explain kind of the way that the Green New Deal captured people's imaginations and got you know, people talking about climate change in a mm -hmm. way that really hadn't happened before. What do you attribute that to? Well, I think the people, look, Ed Markey was involved that with well, and Ed and I worked on the climate change legislation in 2009. So uh, look, hats off to people who got people talking about climate change. I think it's wonderful. I think it's a combination of a little panache and, and good timing. The timing is important because um, <clears throat> 2007, when I wrote my book, Climate change was a graph. It was a line on a chart. And we would talk to people about the parts per million that are going up. It's kind of theoretical. Yeah, it was theoretical. It was an intellectual exercise, and, and we were correct. <laughs> but it was not visceral. Now this is a visceral loss. It's people standing in eight or trying to stand in eight feet of water in, uh, in Hamburg, well, Iowa. Well, it's, you it's, saw this in Paradise, right? Didn't saw you? this in Paradise. I saw this in, in Seminole Springs. Uh, I remember talking to Marsha. Moss and Seminole Springs. This is a, a group of mobile homes burnt out in a small, beautiful little community north of L.A. And she was just telling me about showing me her home and the devastation that that woman experienced was so visceral and profound. So now it is something people are experiencing in their own lives. They're seeing it. 
and they're living it. And so this is no longer an abstraction. So the country's ready. This is a magic moment where you have a twinning of uh, urgency. This is the last chance. This is the last chance. We will not have another opportunity to save our grandchildren from this if we do not act in the next administration. Together with the the uh, um, enormous increase of clean energy jobs that are coming on, the number one fastest growing job is solar installer. And we can now, in my retrofitting requirement to retrofit buildings, we got you know thousands or hundreds of thousands of jobs for carpenters and laborers and plumbers and electrician. Everyone can participate in this revolution. So it is a magic moment. But look, it requires inspiration. We would not have gone to the moon without the President Kennedy calling us to that unified mission. And that's why I called my book, Apollo's Fire, Igniting America's Clean Energy Economy. We need that spark. And I do believe this is something that is very deep in the American character. We are can-do people. We are innovators. We invent, we create, we build. But we need that spark of innovation from the White House. And I think I've demonstrated uh, over a decade of that inspirational quality. President Trump came out to California after uh, the, one of the wildfires, and he was standing there with uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor at the time, Gavin Newsom, and Governor Jerry Brown. You mean in Pleasure Town, or I can't remember what he yeah, called he, it. Yeah, he, <laughs> he misnamed Paradise. Right. Uh, but uh, And talking right there in the midst of the devastation uh, about you know, questioning the science. And what, what do you make of that? Because it's not just him, of course. There is strong opposition among Republicans. Is it as simple as, you know, you don't want to lose votes among your base or that you're getting contributions from the fossil fuel industry? Or is it, you know, is it something more than that? Well, first off, <clears throat> for me to try to explain Donald Trump's um, cranial uh, <laughs> position is impossible for me to even give a hypothesis about but, but, I would, but, but I would point out that uh, at least 75% of Americans now are asking us to take action on climate change. And this is moving very rapidly. It's had an 11-point swing towards reality in the last year. And certainly the Democratic side, this is now the number one priority in the Iowa primary voters tied with health care. So people are now recognizing this. So, uh, yes, a lot of Republican politicians are more interested in being slavishly devoted to Donald Trump then they are being devoted either to science or the wishes of their constituents. Well, I want to ask about kind of political strategy around climate change. I was covering the cap and trade negotiations uh, in the California Capitol in 2017, and we saw Governor Jerry Brown really approach it from kind of a center left, I would argue, perspective. He wanted to get business on board. He wanted to get Republican votes on this big climate change legislation. There are people who have said that's not possible on a national level. You have to approach this from the left, something like the Green New Deal. I mean, how would you approach this as president politically? Well, I'm going to be uh, rolling out our the beginning. We're going to have several tranches of my clean energy plan. And the first one we will roll out will be Friday in Los Angeles. And I'm looking forward to that. And what I will propose are policies that we know that work. Look, we're doing it in my state. And again, this comes back. There's a bit of a theme to my candidacy. This is not just rhetorical flourishes. Just come to my state and look up. Look what we've done. We're passing a 100% clean energy bill, the most vigorous in the nation. We will be the first nation to, or state to wean ourselves totally off of coal-based electricity in 2025. We are the first state that will require retrofix to our, to our buildings to have, to have less wastage. 
We are one of the most aggressive in electrifying our transportation system. These are things that we are actually doing and accomplishing. And I don't believe that those should or can be hung up in Congress if, one, we have a president who's been working on this for two decades, and two, we get rid of the filibuster. Now, this is important. Uh, I was. This may sound like just a procedural issue, but it's life or death when it comes to climate change. And I was the first candidate who says we need to get rid of the filibuster so that we can advance clean energy legislation. And I believe it is possible to do that in part because we've done it so successfully uh, in my state. Governor, we're almost out of time before we let you go, though. I know you have a reputation as having, as being very funny. As being, yeah, funny be, looking, that's what you do. <laughs> what do you do for fun, especially <clears throat> now that you're running for president? Well, uh, I love riding my bicycle. I feel like I'm 10 years of age anytime I'm on my bike. It's kind of a time machine. I love playing with my grandkids, uh, three who have been officially designated as the cutest, funnest <laughs> grandchildren in the state of Washington. And I, I really do. I just I treasure those times. And, uh, uh, and anytime I'm with them, they came down, their Cub Scout troop came down to my office uh, the other day, and it was just a joy to see uh, what we're protecting and what we're fighting for. So these can be long days, 18-hour days on the trail, but um, thinking about them is, is a very high motivator to do this work. All right. Governor Jay Inslee, thanks so much for joining us on Thank Political you. Breakdown. Don't forget to vote. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Special thanks this week to the Silicon Valley Community Foundation for hosting our interview with Governor Inslee. Our engineers are Seal Muller and Rob Spate, and KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinnie Tong. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Guy Marzarati. And never fear, Lagos Hive. Marisa's back next She week. will be back with a vengeance. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.